you can go ahead and be uh, marking 2 Kings 5 in your Bibles. You're talking about a familiar story of Naaman in a few moments. Now, I think one of the joys of having grandchildren that Beth and I have discovered is that we get invited into a child's world that we wouldn't know anything about if we were not grandchildren. We enjoy watching the grandsons and being with them, but it kind of comes second nature to us with the grandsons because we raised two boys, and that seems to be very familiar. It's the granddaughters. I've had to learn some new skills with them because while with the boys, there's uh, hunting and fishing shows and just dressing camouflage and you're done. But with girls, it seems to be a little bit more complicated. You've got to have the dolls and the stories and the all the pretend things, and then there's going to be something pink someplace. But we've enjoyed our time with them. And the other night, Beth and I, uh, we had granddaughter duty. And so we, uh, after telling all the stories and playing through all the little girl games, uh, we decided it was time for movie night, and we let them choose the movie. They introduced us to an animated movie, Zootopia, and some of you have probably seen that. I hear that. Oh, yeah. So some of you have seen this. Uh, Zootopia is the story of a, of a young rabbit named Judy. I don't know. This is all pretend. But a young rabbit named Judy who wants nothing more in life than to be the first rabbit police officer in Zootopia. Now, their parents are adamant about she needs to be a carrot farmer. That's where the money is. And so they are trying to dissuade her from her dreams of being a police rabbit. So anyway, as, um, in fact, I'm going to slide behind here. So as, the, um, as we hear mom and dad discussing with Judy uh, this need to continue her dream as a, or continue, continue their dream of her being a carrot farmer, the dad explains to her, he says, he says, Judy, have you ever wondered why your mom and I are so happy? Judy says, nope. And he said, well, I'm going to tell you. He said, we learned a long time ago, just give up on your dreams and settle. And then he said, that's the beauty of complacency. If you don't try anything new, you'll never fail. Well, Judy goes on and becomes the first rabbit police officer in Zootopia because she's driven uh, to be successful. As we look at 2 Kings, the fifth chapter, we're going to be introduced to a man who was successful, who not only set a goal and had a dream, but he made it an obsession. And as we look at the life of Naaman, we're going to discover that Naaman is a story of success. But he made success his God. And it's so easy for us to look at success as if it is the drive in life, that we set dreams that are so lofty and so high that nothing can dissuade us. So this is a story about one who was seduced by the counterfeit God of success. But it's not really a story about Naaman and his success. As we look at Second Kings 5, it's not really going to be uh, a story of the healing of Naaman, but what it's going to be is it's going to be a story about a young slave girl who serves in Naaman's house, serving Naaman's wife, who's going to teach us that real success in life 
is not in what you have, but real success in life is your connection to God and your connection to his story. It's so easy for us to look past the um, insignificance of this little girl who is in the background, who is serving as a slave, and to focus in on Naaman as the main character. But we're going to discover that, that this little girl is very important. You know, but let's not be too tough. Before we get into on Naaman, before we get into this story from Second Kings, let's, let's not be too tough on Naaman. Because while he did own a lot, he was very successful. He's the hero of the story. He's the one that in Bible class will cut out the little figure and stick it to the flannel graph. We'll feature him in the slideshows because of his successful accomplishments. He's the general in Aram. He's an important individual. He's kind of the star of the story. I can imagine when Naaman was a small child, he probably played king of the mountain. I don't know if you ever did this when you were in elementary school, but we used to go out on the monkey bars, which I think have out been, been outlawed now. But Remember, they used to have the tall monkey bars out on the playground, and the goal was you would climb to the top of the monkey bars. If anyone was at the top, you would have to throw them off of the monkey bars, which was allowed, and then you could occupy that position. And then every child on the playground would climb the monkey bars and try to throw you off of the position. It was your goal that as people climbed the monkey bars that you would throw, kick, do whatever, whatever you needed to do to make sure that they never reached the top, that you got to be king of the mountain. Well, I see Naaman as one at the top of the monkey bars when he was a child who maintained that position of king of the mountain. You know, but like I say, let's not be too tough on Naaman because haven't we been guilty, perhaps, of some of the same things in our own life? You know, because even today, security for us can rest on our own wisdom. Security for us and success for us can rest on our own strength, the ability to, to climb to the top and then maintain that position. We live in kind of a performance-trapped society where our success is determined by how well we can perform. You know, I had a, a friend of mine in another state that left a lucrative job with a company because he was told by management, you no longer have friends. Everyone you know uh, becomes a client, becomes a potential customer. Every social gathering you go to, you don't look at it as a friend or a community, but you look at that as a potential customer base because we want to climb to the top and we want to grow whatever we have. For some, for, for some it has become almost like an achievement addiction. You know, I've got to do better than what I did the day before. I've got to not just maintain what the day before looked like, but I've got to out-achieve myself. And this drive continues to just almost be obsessive. And then it's led to an inflated view of ourselves. This, this drug of success, this addiction to success, can give us the feeling sometimes, has the danger of giving us the feeling that, that we can do no wrong. Because you see, success feeds our self-worth. 
and we like to really feel good about ourselves, and we can feel best about ourselves, we're told by society, no one in this church, I'll go to other churches, but, but we're told that we can feel better about ourselves if we can just be at the top of our chosen profession. So that becomes our goal. So professional success, it just brings this unparalleled feeling of ecstasy. Our problem is, though, to maintain that feeling, we have to outachieve the day before. It's a hard feeling to hold on to. Well, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying success is bad at all. I would encourage everyone to strive for excellence in everything that you do. Strive for success. I'm not saying that professional success or sporting success or even social success is a bad thing. But what we're talking about is the type of success that becomes obsessive. And it becomes a counterfeit God. It becomes our drive. A culture where honor and godliness are replaced by a drive to prove that I am worth more than anyone else. And the way I have to do that is out-achieve everyone around me. Perhaps you've never experienced that or you don't have that drive. That's wonderful. But for some in our culture, we stew in this, in this pressure cooker of competition to win, to get more, to be on top, to make more money, to have a larger portfolio. We have this drive to throw others off the monkey bars so that we can climb to the top. And we spend our life doing so. This seduction of this counterfeit God has taken a toll on our families. It's taken a toll on professionals in our culture. What I'm asking is that we as parents, that we as grandparents, that we as friends, as Christians, step back and take a serious look at what's being modeled to our younger generation. Uh, while successes and, and such are good with, within themselves, success in life is not measured by the number of trophies that you might have on a shelf. Uh, success in life is not measured by high grades. It's not measured by scholarships or investment accounts. Um, while all that in, uh, is important, it's not the real true measure of success. Sometimes average is okay. Back when uh, my best older son, John, uh, when he was in high school, I thought, well, I'm going to put all this psychology training to use. With my own children now, we're going to go over this report card in a smart way. So I sat down with John. I said, all right, let's look at your report card here. I said, um, John, remind me, what does A stand for? He goes, well, Dad, it's right here on the report card. A stands for excellence. Okay. See any excellence on this report card? No. So remind me again, what does B stand for? He said, well, it stands for above average. Do we see any above average on this report card? No, sir. I said, remind me, what does C stand for? And he looked at it and average. 
and I said, John, do we see any C's on, do we see any average on this report card? Yes, sir, we do. I said, so what have we learned from this exercise? John thought for a minute and he said, well, I guess, Dad, you're just going to have to get used to the fact you got an average kid. <laughs> but we don't want average, do we? We want the excellence. We want to excel. So we push our children. We push ourselves. I don't know if you've seen the show Tiny Homes or not. But Beth and I have decided in some recent reevaluation just of the value of stuff, we've decided we're going to downsize. And so I told Beth, I said, okay, my goal would be 250 to 400 square feet because I've been watching tiny homes. And I'm amazed by these families that move into that. Now, I, I will go ahead and jump to the end of the story. I did not win that argument, so we will not be living in a tiny home. But I, I really am amazed by this show because there are families that are moving into 250 square feet and taking their families with them. In order to prepare them for, for tiny house living, the people are giving them cardboard boxes and saying, go through your house and whatever you can put in this cardboard box is what you take with you. And so they're trying to prioritize and decide what to take and they're filling up these boxes and they're going to live in the, in the tiny homes. But you know, I, I'm listening to the motivation behind a lot of these young families they're saying, we grew up in a home where it was all about stuff, that we wanted big houses. Our parents wanted big houses, and they wanted a lot of stuff, and they built alarm, they put alarm systems on it, that they would hire guards, take out insurance, and many of them say, we grew up in a home where our stuff owned us, and we don't want to do that. We don't want the big mortgage payments. We don't want all of this stuff. We want to focus in on ourselves as families. And it's about us being together. It's not in what we own. That's so countercultural to perhaps the way you and I were raised, where you, you start out with your starter home, and then you got to move up into your transition home, and then from there you get the big house. How many square feet you got in here? I don't know. I, because we want that, and, and, and we just fill the houses with stuff. And now we have a culture of people saying we've seen the results of that. So we go to Second Kings, the fifth chapter, and we find this very successful man who's made it to the top of the monkey bars. We find this character of Naaman. But in this story, there's going to be three main characters that we're going to focus on. The first character is going to be a slave. Not a very popular word nor notion today, but she is a slave. She's been conquered and brought back into Aram and is to serve in Naaman's house and Naaman's wife as a slave. The second group we're going to look at is going to be just a young man, Elisha's messenger, his servant. And then the third ones that we're going to look at in this story are going to be Naaman's slaves. All three, I want you to note, are very ordinary people. Sub-successful, if that's a word. If it's not, I just invented it. Sub-successful people who are going to make a great difference and who are really going to introduce the presence of God into this story. 
And by the way, this story would not be recorded in the Bible if there were not the story of God, the presence of God in it. But the story begins with this young, captured Israelite girl who goes into Naaman's household as Naaman's wife's uh, slave. And she goes, to, um, she goes to Naaman's wife. And she's noted that Naaman has leprosy. You see, you've got to understand who Naaman is. Naaman is a general. He's one of the highest-ranking officers in all of Aram. Not only that, but he seems to be very popular among the people, has a high percentage approval rating. But more importantly, he's favored by the king. But he has leprosy. Now, we don't know to what degree his leprosy nor what type of leprosy he may have had because lepers were generally isolated from the populace. But to say the least, leprosy is not the disease you want one to have when he's serving in a public place because not only is it horrible for the one who has leprosy, but it's horribly disfiguring. It's hard to look at him. And Naaman needs to be cured of this leprosy. It's a bad skin disease. And you see, Aram had sent an army into Israel and had come back with slaves. And this young girl is one who had been brought back as a slave. But it is this captured Israelite girl that goes to Naaman's wife and says, can I tell you about this prophet who dwells in Samaria? And if you'll but send Naaman to that prophet, the prophet could provide healing because Naaman needed the healing. And there we go. So if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he will cure him of the leprosy. This is the news that Naaman wants to hear, is that there is a healing in there. So anxious to find the prophet and to heal him, Naaman, Naaman gets all of his troops together, and they march off to Israel so that they can address the king. He carries with him, though, this letter from the, from the king of Aram, and he's to give it to the king of Israel. And then, it, then that king will direct Elisha, the prophet, to heal Naaman. That's the plan anyway. So Naaman loads up all of his stuff. He's got his, his men. He's got his donkeys loaded up. He's carrying with him about 750 pounds of silver, almost a ton of gold, and carrying 10 of the finest garments that he can possibly find, that he can offer to the king of Israel so that, um, so that he can be healed. He says, when the writing reaches you to the king of Israel, he says, look, you'll know that I've sent my servant Naaman in order that you may cure him of this disease. So Naaman delivers this to the king of Israel along with all of the gifts. For the king of Israel, now you've got to remember that Israel and Aram do not get along well with each other right now as Aram has just raided Israel and has somehow avoided a war. But now here's the general saying, I want you to heal me. And so Joram, who is the king of Israel, is enraged by this insensitivity of this general to show up and to ask for healing. It makes Joram so angry that he begins to tear his robes 
Now for a king in Israel to tear his robes, the only equal that we would probably have in our country would be the president flipping back that little cover over the red button and getting ready to push it. Because what the king of Israel hears here is the possible war that could break out if he doesn't provide the healing. But yet if he does provide the healing, then he's showing favor to Abraham. So he is enraged by this. Well, Elisha hears of this because this is a big deal. Elisha, who is living nearby in a cave, sends a messenger into the king's court to say, have him come and see me. And when he arrives, I'll tell him what he must do to have the healing. So Naaman packs up all of his stuff and he heads off to the cave. And this is really where the fun begins. Is because Naaman has a picture in his mind of what the healings to look like. How do you treat great successful people? How is he to be treated because he has all of his army with him and he has all the riches with him and he holds a letter from the king of Aram that introduces him uh, as, uh, as a great man. So how is he to be addressed? Well, as he arrives at the cave, Elisha does not come out, but he sends a little servant boy out there and simply says to him, go. Wash seven times in the Jordan River and your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. Well, Naaman hears this and he says, I thought that for me, that, that the prophet himself would surely come out, stand tall, call upon the name of Yahweh his God, wave his hand over this place and cure me of this stuff. He says, rivers of Damascus are better than all the rivers of Israel put together could I not wash in them and be clean? And then this important statement, so he turned and left in a raging huff. This has made one of the most powerful, most prestigious men in the land furious. And so he turns around and he leaves. But it's our third group of people that we're focusing on that the story turns to now. It's not the great generals that he has around him. It's not his sergeants. It's not his fighters, but the slaves. The slaves surround Naaman, and they tell Naaman, you know, if he were to have told you to do something great, you would have done it. You were looking for something great because you want to be treated great. What do you have to lose? Why don't you go wash in the river Jordan? Yeah, you know the story. You know the lesson in this. He goes back and he washes in the River Jordan and he comes out clean. Mission accomplished. End of story. So what's the lessons for us in all of this? Would one of the lessons might be that our sense of success can blind us to the power of God? Yeah, I think that'd be a good lesson. Or, or, or perhaps, and I had to put this one in, that politicians and world leaders sometimes don't know what they're doing? Yeah, I think that'd be a good lesson to walk away with. How about God's prophets and God's people have tremendous power? That'd be a good lesson. Or, or how about God's grace cannot be bought, only received? That might be a good lesson. But I want us to dig a little deeper. And I want to... But perhaps the lesson that I would draw from this that 
I want to tell you of this morning is it, it again goes back to this little servant girl. It goes back to a small child. I want you to remember who this girl is. She was taken captive by the armies of Aram and brought into slavery into Naaman's house. Naaman is the general of the armies of Aram. It is Naaman's men that went into the slave girl's home, either isolated her from her parents and took them off into slavery, or perhaps killed her parents and drug her as a young child. To be sold into slavery, she probably would have been 10 to 13 years old. Drug her back and put her into a life of servitude because that's what conquered people do. If anyone should want to see Naaman die a cruel, horrible death, it would be this girl. Perhaps at the cost of her own life, she might want to step up and go, Naaman, you remember me? Let me, let me remind you of who I am. You know, and now you have leprosy. I will dance on your grave. And she might point that finger of revenge at him and say, look, I have no disease. Look at the condition you're in. But she doesn't. What she says is, if only you would see the prophet. He will cure. I think that's a tremendous spirit. Because rather than that spirit of hate, here is this sub-successful, ordinary person, below average, a slave, who steps forward into an intense conversation and says, can I suggest that we put God into this story? If this young girl had never stepped forward, then Naaman would have never been cured. It's the young boy that walks out of Elisha's cave. Not Elisha himself, not the great man, but a small servant that walks out and basically says to Naaman, can we put God into this story? Can I suggest that you do what God recommends you do through this prophet? It is not the great men of Naaman's army that change Naaman's mind, but it's the slaves of Naaman who go to him and say, go to Jordan, do what, what the prophet has said. We need to put the name of God into the conversation. You see, we like Naaman, we work so hard to be successful. But we learn that, that we're still vulnerable. In spite of our greatnesses and our successes, in spite of all the stuff that we surround ourselves with, we still get cancer diagnoses. We get laid off of our jobs. We lose our families. We experience death. In our culture right now, in, in the vocabulary of our culture right now, there is so much fear. There is so much anger. There is so much tension. There is so much hatred. There's this leprosy of attitude and of morals and of mind. What we need today, not more great men. What we need today is not more great women. What we need today 
And I think this lesson teaches it to us. We need more average people that just step forward out of the shadows. And while all this rhetoric is in the air, we say, can we just put God into this conversation? Now, I see the social media. And I see Christian people who are engaging in the inflammatory environment that seems to be at its height right now. Can we not spend our energy and our time and our talent speaking as ordinary people right out of the pew and step forward and say, can we offer God into this conversation to remind people that this leprosy has a, has a healing? i got to tell you, I've got great optimism coming into November because November 9th, God is still God. Regardless of any political turning, you know, the Naamans around us are in the raging huff right now. But can we act kind of like the slave, like the servant? And even in a culture that may not hear us, can we step forward and just offer the words that there is a God and He offers us peace? and he offers us joy. We have a third choice coming up. I choose God. And I hope we all choose God. And that will not be reliant on any cultural shift nor any political current because God is God. Period. End of story. 100% of the spiritual electoral votes, God is God. So we got to make a choice. Is our prayer going to be to God that he will help us to drag our way through this miserable world just so we can go to heaven someday? Or do we come before God and thank him for a day and thank God for the joy and the peace and the love and the hope that he brings? And then we live that abundant life that John 10.10 talks about when Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it how? abundantly we live that life oh yeah i got good news at the end of it as a bonus you get to go to heaven heaven is not our goal heaven is our bonus our goal is the full life that we live now completely healed of the leprosy that's around us the god i see in the bible does not work through our strengths the God I read about in the Bible works through weaknesses. He works through brokenness. He works through our weakest times so that at the end of it, we, like Moses, stand on the other side and say, I don't know, I just held up the stick. We do such ordinary things, and God comes in and does such miraculous things so we unmistakably see the power of God that's alive. This idol of success is not going to be able to be repelled. It's just going to have to be replaced. God's salvation does not require that we do anything great. God's salvation does not require that we pay any great price, but that we be ordinary people walking in the ordinary paths of our life, in the ordinary streets, in our ordinary jobs and homes and neighborhoods and schools, and we just step forward and say, God is a God of joy. Can I recommend that you go see the prophet who dwells in Samaria? 
what Jesus has done for us cannot be conquered nor dissuaded by anyone, anything, any place, any time. But as Paul puts it, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. It's a message of hope. We're going to have shepherds that are stationed around the building. They're going to be at most of the exits. Two of them be right down front, a couple in the balcony. Those men are there for a reason. They are there because they want you to come and let them pray with you because perhaps you've been seduced by this world into thinking that, that we're in trouble or that we're without hope. Perhaps there's something in your life right now that has, has become your distractor from your spiritual life. Let these men pray with you. Let them encourage you. That's the reason they're there. Aaron's going to lead us in a song, and during that song, we invite you to go to those areas or come down front, and these men will be happy to surround you in prayer. Let's stand and sing.